Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher. I'm conducting the hosting duties today. We've got a great show lined up for you. Uh, We'll be answering some listener questions coming up in the second and third segments, talking about finance and college admissions content. So you'll want to stick around for that. Uh, But before we get there, we're going to do a little bit of, I think, story time. Um, We're going to get to know uh, my friend and colleague, Kira Tyler. Kira, hey, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Ian. So good to be here. I'm excited to do some storytelling. Storytelling? I think, I mean, I don't know. We'll see what what comes here. I think yeah. we are, you know, we've been doing this show for a while now. I think we're, we're getting close to 400 total shows. And we've explored a lot of different ideas about essays and mm-hmm. activities lists and yeah. test optional policies. And we'll keep doing that. But I think we also see opportunities to explore other interesting topics that are adjacent to college admission and college finance. And because of the rich experience of so many of our educators, there's a great opportunity for us to just talk to you and hear a little bit about what your pathway was uh, through your undergraduate career, how you ended up here. Um, And so we're going to do that if that's okay with you. Love it. Can't wait. All right, great. So um, I want to start with what you majored in. In college. Sure. What was your college major, Kira? My college major was a, I received a Bachelor of Music in flute performance. In flute performance, a Bachelor of Music. And yes. how many times over the course of your undergraduate career, and maybe even in the time leading up to it, as you were deciding you were going to be a, a Bachelor of Music in, in flute performance, how many times did people say, what are you going to do with that? Um, I would be a very rich woman if I could calculate that. So I mean, I'm in my forties and people still ask me and I'm like, I have a very lovely career. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your concern. I'm doing well. Yes. I'm doing just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so what was your go-to answer? I think this is something that a lot of students encounter. I think it's like, you know, you go to a family reunion or you're hanging out with people and the question always comes up, well, what what do you think you're going to major in in college? And then you have an answer to that. And then there's always the follow-up. But how did you handle this given the uniqueness of your Yeah. Sorry. Let me turn this off. I really, people would ask me and I would confidently say, I don't know. Maybe I'll be in an orchestra or maybe I'll work in arts management or maybe I will find something else in college that I find equally interesting. And I will tell you, I was never worried. Not once. Um, I happen to come from a family who really values the performing arts. Mm -hmm. And my mom always says, like, I'm still kind of shocked that you decided when you were applying that that's what you were going to do because I knew you could do so many other things. And she's right. Like, I was a super academic, classically academic kid. Um, So she's right. I could have done other things, but I really wanted to further explore my talent and see where it could lead. I love that you, you have almost this way of answering a a question like that. That's almost like, why are you asking me that question? Like, (laughs) you think I haven't considered this already? Um, Which I think, which I think is awesome. But that idea also of not being worried, Mm -hmm. I think is something that I've observed in some of my friends from, uh, from college in confidence that they'll find a path for themselves. Um, even when their major doesn't necessarily connect directly to a professional outcome. Um, what do you think creates that kind of confidence? Is it both what you brought to college in terms of who you were, Mm -hmm. or was it something that developed during your undergraduate years? So I think it's both. So I, I, I gained a lot of confidence even before college because, you know, being a flute player and distinguishing yourself as a strong professional path flute player is really challenging. There are a lot of us and it, there's a lot of noise. 
um, and it's hard to be considered a really good one. And I worked hard and I, my parents afforded me experiences that exposed me to what was out there. So I never, I live in a big city, right? I've always been a Chicagoan. I've lived in other places, but, um, you know, I was in the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra. We got to travel to Europe. I got to hear my peers who were doing incredible things. And then I got to see them go off and do really interesting things. And I went to Interlochen for summer camp. And so my point is that my parents were really great about wanting me to see like, you may be great here, but like, let's see what else is out there. And they weren't pushy. And I wasn't actually super competitive. I just kind of wanted to know where I fit in. And it turned out that in all of those settings, I happened to fit in pretty much near the top, if not at the top. Mm -hmm. So I already had a good amount of confidence going in. You know, I went to Northwestern University, which has a conservatory level music school. When I was admitted, I had other great options too. When I was admitted, I was only one of four kids in my um, studio. So that was another way for me to understand sort of the level that I was playing at. And then when I got there, I continued to do pretty well. Like, I realized like I'm going to have to do things differently if I want to really kind of like be ready for auditions for a professional career senior year or go to grad school at a conservatory like Juilliard or something. And then I started to realize like, oh, I have other things that I also like doing that music has kept me from a little, right? Like I wanted to do more volunteering and I wanted to do this cool organization and that took time away. I wanted to be a cheerleader, which I did until my teacher was like, that's not wise. Like you're a performer and you don't want to break something. Um, So I stopped doing that. But so I then started to realize as I got closer to like my junior recital, you have to do a recital. And then my senior recital, I was like, okay, I've loved doing this. And I know that I could go further if I wanted to, but I think I want to use my skill set doing something else. And that's, you're saying junior, senior year in college is when, when that decision came up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just got, I just got flashbacks to PE class and getting kicked in the hand in soccer, like three days before a violin audition. And just like, right. It's just like, dude, <laughs> why? why? Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, I was like, oh, cheerleading and flute. No, those things don't mix. Yeah. Big um, 10 cheerleading and flute don't mix. So you, it's interesting though, because I think as you're describing this, it feels like you maintained a lot of momentum with your interest, but there wasn't any particular, particular kind of fork in the road where it was like, I'm going to decide to do this now. It was just, I'm going to keep doing the things I'm interested in yeah. and see where this takes me. Totally. And there may be a point at which something else grabs my attention more fully. Absolutely. I really, again, my parents are incredible. And the goal in the house was you go to college to explore. Like they were not like, you've got to find a professional path. You go, we're giving you these four years to figure it out. Doesn't really matter to us what you decide, but we want you to take advantage. And I did. So I also, I will say, Ian, I used summers. I went to, um, you know, it's very, typical for kids on a performance track to do summer festivals, right? So I did a festival my before freshman year of college and the same one again the next summer. And then I decided like I wanted to get an internship actually outside of performing sophomore year between sophomore and junior year. So I got an internship with my youth orchestra doing like arts management kind of stuff. Okay. And then my junior year, I was like, maybe I want to go to law school and be an agent. So I had an internship with a talent agency. Yeah. And so, and I also did some things in college to kind of build up my resume because I'm not stupid, right? I knew people were going to be like, who do you think you are with this performance degree? And so I also had a bunch of other stuff that I knew could also be transferable as well. I think that's key because we we often get parents that will ask these questions about a student's academic major or whatever it is they're focused on in college. And the perception is that that's going to be the exclusive content of your college experience. Right. And you're describing a way in which your musical performance major opened doors into very interesting internships and professional opportunities that you might not have had access to if you were an English major or a history major, because you wouldn't necessarily have had that opportunity to plug right into those spaces. So it's kind of a cool way to leverage an existing talent that you have. Yeah. I want to go back to this. 
this question about, you know, you've got a really supportive family, believes in education, that you treat college as an opportunity to explore. Mm-hmm. I very much had a similar kind of experience. Um, my parents both being, you know, professors, um, they have this belief in higher ed as an opportunity to explore. But I also think... I, is that right for everyone? Right. Like, like, you know, we, we don't want to send the the message here on the show that like, yeah, just go figure it out. You're going to be fine. I think that there is something to this prescriptive element, but like, how do you think students should think about the balance between a career focused pathway versus this more exploratory option? Sure. It's a great question. I do realize that's a huge privilege, right? Like a lot of people their parents aren't doing that or their guardians or whomever. Um, and so my husband's the opposite, you know, his parents basically were like, you love to draw. You're going to be an architect. And they told him that at six and he was like, Oh, I'm going to be an architect. And he's never, you know, <laughs> like, so I think the goal is like, let's try to find a happy medium. And I really believe in experiential opportunities, right? So like, yeah. think about your skill set. Think about for me, Ian, one of the big, I marinated on it for a while. And I knew I wanted to lead a certain lifestyle. And most importantly, I wanted to have some autonomy over where I got to live. If you are a professional musician looking for a job, you audition where the jobs are. That's right. And I knew that there were certain parts of the country that were off limits to me, not interesting. And that there were other places I was really interested in, but like how many times does a New York Phil seat open and let alone, am I going to get it? Odds are no. So, um, you know, I think it's a combo of like this idea of let's think about what you're good at. Let's think about what the interests are and let's see how you can pull those together in both a major, but also utilize the opportunities that are available extracurricularly. You Use your career center as a music major. I used my career center. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just took it all in. I think sometimes we think about these um, majors in a silo, like what's a humanities major going to use? Like what's a sociology major going to use the career center for? Like what kind of internships are available? And it's like tons, lots. Any any of them. Any (laughs) of them, right? Like don't count yourself out. Um, And so I, I just let myself try as many things as I could to find what I wanted to do. To what extent do you feel there were moments where your major prevented you from having sure. some sort of an exploration or some sort of an experience, uh, you know, setting aside cheerleading, which you couldn't do alongside, you know, uh, the music performance. Sure. Where was it limiting? That's such a good question. So in my degree, you know, three quarters of my academic time, music is academic, everybody. Oh, yeah. um, so of my academic time was spent Um, in music. And then the rest were spent in other academic disciplines. So music takes up a ton of slots. I also was on the quarter system. Mm -hmm. So the the weeks move really quick. And um, so that was interesting. Um, And so the limiting piece for me that I still think a lot about, I don't regret it, but I wish I could have had it study abroad. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to fit in a study abroad if you want to have an internship, if you're on a performance path, you've got to get, you know, your recital up, blah, blah, blah. It's that's really hard to incorporate. And also, if you do, it can be really limiting because you probably want to go to like a conservatory or somewhere in Germany, you know what I mean, that has a music piece so you can continue your studies. So that um, I really wanted to do, but it wasn't in the cards. And I didn't want to use my summer to do that because I wanted to have a more traditional internship. So I would say that was probably the most limiting, but otherwise um, I found a way to do everything else that I wanted to. And you also talked about before going to college that you'd had this European travel experience, right? Mm -hmm. And and so there is, it's not quite the same as study abroad, but I think where you're missing certain elements of a college experience, there are ways to build that into the rest of your life exposure. Yes, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, how do you use it now? Right. Like that's always the question. It's like, okay, well, you've made this story. Like you majored in music. Yes. You decided to find another path. You've got a great rewarding career. You're really good at it. Um, Yeah, you got it. Uh, (laughs) But then how do you use the lessons learned from musical performance? I think a lot of people would say, well, that's just down, down the drain. Like it's not actually something you use every day if you don't perform? What's your response to that? And people, when they realized I wasn't going to pursue music professionally, were also like, well, obviously you're going to change your major. And I was like, oh God, I'm digging in even more now. No way. Like I'm 
seeing this thing through. So the way that it plays a role in my professional life right now and has is that um, I, number one, believe firmly in my abilities, right? Like, and I, you have to do that as a musician. If you do not believe that you're good at what you do, you're going to crumble in an audition and you won't get a job. I also see it from the perspective of I'm very focused. I'm incredibly disciplined. If it has to get done, I'm getting it done. And I take feedback really well. I don't take it personally. I see it as a means of improvement. And so I think it's really those things that have stayed with me. I don't play as much as I want to. My daughter's a cellist. I play with her. It's made me a really good cello parent. Um, You know, she's an actress. My talent agency days sort of show up a little bit here and there, but it definitely, it is not a waste. I think it's a real asset. And I think people appreciate that. Um, And I really appreciate the performing and visual arts as well. They're really hard. It's really hard to get good at it. And I want people to see it as like a valuable way to spend time. Valuable. Um, yeah, definitely add something to, I think, an understanding of, of others, of expression, um, emotion. It's really powerful. Um, yeah. and, and I think it, it is really important. How do you um, live with intonation issues with your child's <laughs> musical performance? Because man, me, my kids and their violin performance, I just have to like be out of the room sometimes. Right. It's rough. Well, you and I talked about the violin and why my kid didn't start on the violin because... <laughs> Right. And I made that mistake twice. Made over. that mistake yeah. twice. Um, <laughs> it's going great, by the way. But yeah, go ahead. I'm so glad. <laughs> She's a beautiful musician. She also has a really good ear, and she sings as well as plays the cello. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't have intonation issues. Like her teacher, even t- a couple days ago, was like, her intonation is pretty stellar. And I'm like, I know it's weird, right? She has a really good ear. We listen to a lot of music, um, which I think is the way to yeah to do it. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Well, I got to, you know, sign up for more, more of that. I think, um, <laughs> Kira, we could talk forever about music really and, and yeah. So, but thank you for coming on and, and telling us a little bit me. about your story. Um, it, the time flew by. So thanks for I being know. here. Love being here. Thanks again. You got it. All right, folks, when we come back, we'll do some listener Q and a, uh, don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at voice America T. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're going to conclude the show with a couple of longer segments and answering your listener questions, which you can always send to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Don't be shy about those questions. Uh, Even if it's something that we've explored previously and you've got a a subtle little tweak that you want to add to that for your students' particular circumstances, we're happy to explore those. I think sometimes some unusual circumstances can raise larger questions that are of benefit to all of our listeners. So we invite you again, sending us questions at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. If you are watching the video, which you can watch on Facebook, you can already see that Shannon Vasconcelos is here with us today. She's, are you always the one that does the Q and a for the finance side? 
If I am available, it is me. Yeah, that it's is, my favorite segment. I don't let anyone else take it. It's also my favorite, but Beth always takes it. So like, it, yep. it's my lucky day today. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really pleased to have this opportunity. Um, so, all right, Shannon, you know your finance stuff. I know my admission stuff. We're gonna we're gonna try and test each other. Um, I'm going to start first. I think how often does Beth really kick it off with a finance question? Like never, right? Never. Okay. Well, here we yeah. go. We're going to kick it off with a finance question. <laughs> um, we actually had two questions that are asking about need blind. Um, I'll start with, with the first I'm listening to the podcast and hearing how need blind schools don't take finances into consideration. How then do you think many of the top schools have 50% or more students paying full price? How do they know they'll end up with a certain amount of income from tuition and room and board each year? Our kids were pretty successful in admissions. And I do sometimes wonder if our full pay status helped even at the need blind schools. Yes. And actually, you know what, Ian, do you want to just read the second one? Cause I think we can probably tackle them at the same yeah, time. Definitely. This one is from, uh, that first one was from Christy, um, yes. back in July. And then we've got one here from Courtney. Um, and we're going to just start with a little praise for us. First of all, I've been a dedicated listener for about five years since I started working as a college counselor after a career of almost nine years in college financial aid. That's awesome. You've really given me invaluable insights, information, and training to do my job. And I'm so appreciative. Cool. I would love to hear a little more nuanced conversation regarding how need blind schools can truly be need blind if they also meet full need. The numbers seem to consistently show that the percent of students in need based aid of these need blind need net meet need campuses hovers between 45 and 50% each year, meaning that around 45 to 55% of students are completely full pay. And Shannon, we know that to be full pay at one of these institutions, you have to be very high in the income bracket nationally. Um, so it's not as though half so the people in the U.S. can afford to right. pay. Right. It, it is not representative of the U.S. population. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So it's disproportionate. So even if admissions doesn't see any actual financial aid info or applications, they can see zip codes, educational backgrounds of parents, high schools attended, et cetera. I also know that the dean or provost or CFO must keep some kind of tabs on how much aid is being used versus how many full pay students are admitted. Not to mention how this could potentially trickle down toward the development offices as affecting future capacity for giving. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So I think what we have is two separate questions. We have a parent who's saying, how could this possibly be that it shakes out 50-50 every year? Yep. And we have a counselor with a little bit more of a nuanced question saying, there are so many different stakeholders involved in the operating costs yeah. of the institution. Surely they must be concerned with making sure that this works out. So does yes. need blind really mean need blind? Right, exactly. And I almost wonder if Christy and Courtney were talking because they dropped almost <laughs> identical stats on us. <laughs> yeah. I, this was based on Beth and I discussed need blind and need aware. I think on the last listener question segment, obviously stirred some stuff up because people had some follow-up questions. Um, so I think what I want to say first is these need blind, meet need, meet full need schools that at least Courtney specifically is asking about, and I get a sense that Christy's probably asking about some of the same schools. They There's maybe 30 of them to, to kind of ballpark it in the country compared to the 4,000-ish colleges that they are. So we were talking about right. a very, very small segment of schools, very selective schools, very rich schools. Yes. So I think that that is part of, of a key point here that these schools are not dependent on tuition revenue. Um, if you look at the budgets for these super selective, super rich schools that fall into this category, you know, they're make, meeting maybe kind of 10 to 20 percent of their budget out of tuition, you know, 80 to 90 percent of their budget is coming from elsewhere, largely um, just earnings on endowment. These, right. these schools have endowments, you know, the size of the economies of, of small countries. Um, they've got, you know, research grants, gifts to the school. Sometimes they're operating medical. They've got other sources of revenue. They have billions, billions of yeah. dollars with bees. Uh -huh. Yes. So, you know, to Courtney's point, like somebody's got to be watching this, you know, how can, and Christy also, you know, how can they, how can they do this? Um, the fact is that most of their revenue isn't coming from tuition. So even if they're a little short on tuition one year, you know, they can, they can make it up from other sources. Um, now, having said that, <laughs> to get more to the, the point of this need blind or need aware admissions process 
is a very kind of narrow policy that is specifically speaking to, are they going to specifically look at the data point of, do you need financial aid when they're making an admissions decision? Ian, your dean could go to you and say, you know, our budget's looking rough. We need, you know, 20 more full pay students. This happened to me in the read office all the time, every year. Yes. Yes. Um, So these needs, so that's what happens. Read is a need aware institution. Right. And has to be. Yes, exactly. Um, At these need blind institutions, they, they don't do that. They, and I promise you, I know people think, there ha- again, there has to be something else going on. They have to look at it. Maybe they're looking at the zip codes to figure this stuff out. I really truly believe that they are not, again, can't speak for every school, but from our experience, these need blind institutions, when they say they're need blind, they really are not looking at that. Again, for many of the schools, they don't have to because they've got other sources of funding. Yeah. But what I will say is that... You know, it is not account that is a the need blind policy is a narrow policy. It is not correcting every other way that wealthier students are sort of privileged in the in society and in the you know admissions system. Right. Um, so you know, Christy, of course, I don't know anything about your family, and though I can pretty confidently say that the fact that your full pay did not help your kids at need blind colleges, maybe you could pay for SAT prep for them, which did help them. Maybe you could pay for this cool, uh, you know, elite fencing club that they were in or, you know, other kinds of um, extracurriculars that really suited their interests that maybe folks that didn't have as much money, their kids could not do those things. Um, You know, maybe you had professional contacts that could hook your kids up with cool internship opportunities that folks without money could not. You know, it can really go like way back. Maybe when your kids were young, you could fill your house with lots of books for them to read. And you had some, you know, leisure time that you could read with them. And maybe folks who are working two jobs to put just food on the table could not do those things. Right. You know, so there are so many ways that kind of more like big ways, small ways, direct, indirect ways that kind of wealthier folks do have advantages in the U.S. admissions system, um, that that I think accounts for some of those numbers that don't make sense on the, on the surface at these elite schools. How could 50% of people be full pay? Well, it's easier, I think, to achieve at those super high levels required for those elite schools when you're coming, you have more opportunities when you're coming from a privileged background. Um, I don't want to discount any achievements that any of these kids make. It's not easy. Whether you're rich or poor doing these kinds of things to get into these schools is not easy. Um, but I would say you you do have more opportunities. And that accounts for some, yeah. at least of, of those, um, you know, kind of imbalanced numbers. And then the other thing I would say, there are, I think, active ways that schools might be contributing to this, you know, doing more recruiting at um, at private high schools um, as opposed to inner city high schools, you know, um, rewarding legacies and, and athletics in the admission. Things like that. All of, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah. I think there's some of it is sort of naturally folks with more privilege are, are more advantaged in the system. And there's some unnatural ways <laughs> perhaps that, that schools are contributing to this that all are kind of well outside of the narrow kind of need blind policy the advantaging of, of legacies and development cases and um the recruiting at private like all of this goes on at need blind schools. so need blind need aware that's a very narrow policy but it's not correcting larger in yeah I, I remember I wrote a blog post actually years ago that was um, in direct um, argument to someone that said need blind policies can't exist. But the fundamental idea there was that it's all about how there's this compounding effect of wealth in society that makes wealthier individuals more likely to get a leg up in the admission process, which I think we can all acknowledge is just a part of the reality of this process. And what I wanted to push back on was, look, colleges, when they say need blind, they do mean what they are saying. They are just not 
taking steps to correct for everything that gets you to the door. But when it's actually looking at the application, it's about comparing the content of the application without taking need into account. And I think admission officers like that, right? They want to be able to exclude need from the process. They're very happy to have that opportunity. So as an admission officer, I would not be looking at a zip code to say, does this person really have money? I don't care about that as an admission officer. I want the student in my seat, right? That I think is really, really important. Um, so th that's a key distinction. Um, to offer. And I think, you know, the other piece that I would add, Shannon, is if these schools started to notice that their classes were only 25% full pay or 10% full pay as a result of these policies, I think they might shift them. But because every single year they look at those policies and they say, we're essentially holding steady with our revenue from tuition, I think they can keep that policy in place. Exactly right. Yeah. And I think it's there have been schools over the years that have gone away from a need blind policy to a need aware policy. They are not these super rich, super elite schools um, for the most part. They're schools that are a little less wealthy. And right. they decided that we can't do this anymore because the numbers are not working out in our in our favor. And if we want to keep that commitment to meeting the full need of everyone that we accept, which is we key. just don't have. We can't, we can't. Yeah. So we have to look at it as part of our admissions decision. Um, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of arguments kind of for or against. I can tell you from working, and I think I talked about this a little last time at Boston University, which at the time was need blind, but did not meet full need. We would, you know, accept students just based on their academic record and all of that, not looking at need, but then we would not fund them fully. So they we couldn't would say to it. a student whose yeah. parents make $20,000 a year, your student can come to our school that costs $80,000 a year, but we're not going to give you any money. So you figure it out. Um, I can tell you from having those conversations, we were not doing that student any favors at all by accepting them um, without regard to their need, but then not funding them. So you can certainly argue that the more ethical stance is if your school cannot afford to be need blind and eat meat, everybody's need that being need aware is the um, yeah. better option. And I think Shannon, there's something I would love to just stamp out the sense of virtuousness about need blind policies. I don't think that there's anything virtuous about them. Um, it, it's all about either you're wealthy enough to account for it or you're not meeting need. Um, and there's not really a whole lot of in between. Great. Um, we have time for one admission question before we take a break. Do you want to jump into that one from Natalie about the AP scores? I think that's a Absolutely. good one. Absolutely. Natalie asks, is there a place to report AP test scores on the Common App? If you don't report um, AP test scores because the score is low, will admissions counselors assume that you received a low score? How do AP test scores factor into admissions and merit decisions, if at all? Yeah, this is a question we get all the time, right around the time that AP scores come back, uh, because students will say, oh my gosh, I got a lower score than I expected. And I think this is a pretty pretty clear way to approach AP scores um, that families don't always know and understand. So let's just try and, and um, clarify for everyone. So there are two types of tests. Um, there are credit-based tests and there are admissions-based tests. So the admissions-based tests are the SAT and the ACT. Used to be subject tests, but we don't have those anymore. So it's just the SAT and the ACT. The sole purpose of those exams is for admissions-related policies. They are helpful for colleges in making admissions decisions. AP exams and IB exams, on the other hand, are credit-based examinations. Their value to colleges is in determining whether a student has acquired a certain level of content knowledge in a particular subject area. And that content knowledge can be exchanged for credit, college credit, in many cases at a school based on achieving a certain score. Now, almost every school that I know of will give a credit for a four or a five on an AP exam. Many will give credit for a three, but you won't see any credits awarded for a one or a two typically. And then with the IB, it's usually credits awarded for a six or a seven. And in some cases, a four or a five on a one to seven scale for the IB exams. Now, because it's credit-based, students have full flexibility for how they want to share that within the college application. And it's really a pretty trivial part of the application itself. Uh, students can self-report their AP exams. You would never have to officially send your AP scores at the admissions phase of your application process. And the way to do it is you just go into the Common App and you go down to the AP scores and you check off which 
test you took and what score you received. And I would advise only reporting the scores that would qualify for credit at the schools that you're applying to. Now, if I took seven AP exams, that's a lot. That's too many. If I took three AP exams, that's much better. And uh, two of them, I got fours. And on the other, I got a two. I'm going to decide not to report my two. Right. Now, a school might say, but you took this AP class. It's on your transcript. So where's the exam? I think a lot of families assume that that's what a school is doing. But again, schools are looking for opportunities to admit students, not reasons to deny students. And they don't know why I didn't have that score. Maybe I didn't take the exam. Maybe I didn't register for it because I wasn't confident in the opportunity to get a good score. Maybe I was sick that day. Yeah. Maybe I got called out of school for a family emergency and couldn't make the exam and couldn't make it up. There are many different reasons. And so a college is not going to assume that score must be low. We're going to hold that against the student. Uh, so really, as with test optional policies, we want students only to submit content that's going to help to advance their admissions process, not something that's going to hold them back. And so you don't have to feel like withholding an AP exam score is going to hurt your college application. So just lean into those ones where you get fours and fives, maybe the occasional three. Don't worry about those ones and twos. Love it. I love the, um, the point. Colleges are looking for reasons to admit you, not reasons to deny you. I think that's really important. That's one of Beth Heaton's favorite phrases. And I like that is really true. But I also like sometimes when I was reading applications, I was like, I really want to deny this kid. That was, that was just vindictive Ian Fisher coming. I didn't actually do that profession. Don't worry, everybody. I'm not, don't, please don't write in. Don't write in about that. All right, Shannon, we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors. And then we're going to come on back and do a couple more questions. Uh, Folks, don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America T. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We're off to part two of our listener Q&A. You can always send us questions at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We've got Shannon Vasconcelos back here with me. I'm Ian Fisher, and we're going to go right into a finance question from Anisha. Uh, What if you're already in college and you need to negotiate? Now, I assume not negotiate grades, but let's negotiate finance. Let me know. I'm not sure what to do because they increased my tuition by an extra $20,000. So what do you do if you're in this circumstance? You're already enrolled, right? You feel like you're there. Can you negotiate aid? Yeah, it it is a very tough situation to be in. and I, I think, and this doesn't help Anisha much, but for the benefit of the other listeners, you know, the time to negotiate as is as a high school senior, as you know, in, in an app or an admitted student who has not yet enrolled. That right. is when the colleges know you've got options. You can walk away. You can go elsewhere. You're in a good negotiating position. Once you are enrolled. 
you are not in a good negotiating position. The, mm-hmm. the, coll- the colleges, they certainly don't want to lose you, but they know that you don't want to go anywhere either in all likelihood. So you will probably stay regardless of if they give you any more money or not. Um, so, so post-enrollment negotiation, really not much of a thing. Now, I would okay. say in in this particular particular circumstance with a $20,000 increase, I, I wish I knew a little bit more about what was going on with Anisha because that's not typical. This is not your typical kind of 3% tuition increase. Uh, you know, that might end up being, you know, a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars, you know, depending on how much tuition is, it's not going to be 20,000. So something else is going on here. Uh, I would expect it's some sort of loss of financial aid, maybe due to a change in financial circumstances in her family, maybe mm-hmm. not making grades is another big one that causes folks to lose financial aid. Um, so I think my biggest piece of advice is talk to the financial aid office at your school, Anisha, uh, depending on what it is, you know, if it was academic reasons that you lost financial aid, you, those are often appealable. If you've got some special circumstances, you might be eligible for like a pro- probationary semester and you can mm-hmm. get aid back. Um, if it's a financial change in your family, um, that might be appealable as well, depending on what it is. You know, if it's you lost financial aid because your parents now make twice as much money you know, this year than they did last year, you might be, you know, stuck paying the bill, but it, it could be other things. Maybe there was like a one-time gain, um, like a bonus that's not going to be repeated. Maybe parents got like a severance package that, that can really mess up financial aid. It was sometimes when a parent loses a job, you might think they're going to be eligible for more financial aid, but because of a severance package, they're actually eligible for less. But if it's a one-time thing, that's not going to be part of income moving forward. That's an appealable circumstance that the financial aid office might be able to look at. Um, They could all financial aid office could also help you looking for some maybe endowed scholarships that the school has where, um, that you might qualify for as a continuing student that you didn't as a freshman student. Worst case scenario, they can help you point you in the right direction of borrowing some loans if you need those to kind of make up any difference. Obviously, you'll have to decide if you can afford to take on that much more debt, not just this year, but if assuming you're not a senior, you know, in in future years. Um, But I, I think, again, not knowing the whole situation here, I would talk to the financial aid office. They can point you in the right direction. You could also talk to your academic department at the at the college, um, whatever your major department is. Sometimes individual departments have um, scholarship funding that they reserve for um, you know, continuing students. Um, so that's another resource to check out. You can also you know, do a, a private scholarship search, look at you know, professional associations associated with your field of study that sometimes provide some funding for continuing students. It's not likely to be $20,000. Uh, but sometimes you can pull in a little bit of funding that way. But I would say in, in short, post-enrollment negotiation, you know, is not much of a thing, but talk to the financial aid office. They can help you out with some other options. Gotcha. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Shannon. Yeah. Uh, the next admissions questions, it's a little bit of a long one. Uh, it's from Patricia. Yes. Patricia says, my son is a rising senior at a large, highly competitive public high school. He was recently told by a school counselor that his SAT scores are too low for his GPA, so he shouldn't submit them. This is heartbreaking for him since he got private tutoring, worked diligently, and significantly raised his scores. Also, he was told that his SAT scores will be used by colleges to compare him to other applicants from our high school. So we should not make decisions about whether or not to submit scores uh, based on our college's average SAT scores, but rather the average scores of other applicants from our school. Uh, Now, my son wants to major in computer engineering. His weighted GPA is uh, 3.96 out of 5.0, unweighted 3.79 out of 4.0. And his SAT super score is 1340, which is broken down 720 math, 620 reading, writing. Uh, It just doesn't seem logical to me, says Patricia, to not submit a 720 math for an aspiring engineering major, which is why I'm struggling with his counselor's advice. Also, he scored five on his AP probability and statistics test, which we will submit. 
So my questions are, is it true that colleges are primarily comparing your scores to the other applicants from your high school? And do you think his scores are way too low for his GPA and therefore he should not submit his scores to any school? Thanks so much. And I've been loving your show since my son's freshman year. Great. I hope I don't ruin that, that nice sign off there with, with the answer here. Um, I think, I think there are some kernels of truth in the advice that are coming from the counselor here, but I think it's not the whole picture. And I think it's lacking some context, right? So first of all, I think, you know, this student, Patricia's son, has done a really great job in high school, right? A 3.79 unweighted GPA. That's a, that's an A minus average. Uh, he's got really good scores: 7.20, 6.20. Those are objectively good scores. Um, we're missing some of the context in terms of the schools that a student is looking at, right? And so, you know, sometimes I'll draw an analogy, Shannon, where I'll say, like, you know, someone might say, um, "We're going to buy a house, and our budget is four hundred thousand dollars. Can we get a good house?" <laughs> the answer, the answer to that question is, well, where are we looking, right? What kind of house do you want to get? Um, what part of the country? Like there's a lot of detail that's kind of missing. So yeah, $400,000 is a great budget for a home. But if we're looking in the Bay area in San Francisco, it's going to buy us a very different kind of home than if we're looking in rural Nebraska, for example. Right. So we have to be cognizant of what the context is. Now, when it comes to that context, I think a school that, that likes a score from a student that feels strongly about that student's score, given the average students that are accepted to that school is going to like those scores, no matter what the other students at a school, uh, that student's high school are scoring. Right. Right. So if a 1340 is above average, it's above average. And it doesn't matter if other applicants have a 1440 or a 1540 because that 1340 is still good. So this idea that a student is going to be looked at as less competitive by virtue of the fact that they are, uh, they have lower scores in the context of their high school isn't really holding a lot of weight for me because it's more about what the college thinks about those scores than how it measures up within the context of that pool. Right. So that's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, the sense that you work really hard on your SAT and you, you try to get the best score that you can get and you, you elevated those scores and feeling like I really want to be able to submit these because I feel good about my effort here. I think that's a sort of feeling that we have to dispatch somewhat. Um, and it, it really centers on, again, the idea of whether the scores are going to be competitive for the given college that we're looking at. But if they're below average or if they're in that lower 25 percent, we should feel good about the option not to submit those scores and to fall back on not even fall back, but to hold up this three point seven nine unweighted as the student's academic performance. Right. And that feels weird because you put in all this effort and you really build towards something. But I think if it doesn't help you, and this is very similar to the AP scores that we talked about before, if a piece of your application doesn't help you, it's not something that you want to include as a part of your application for admission. So the good news is that really long-term, how you did on your SAT doesn't mean anything. It's, you know, the rest of your life, it's like a completely irrelevant factor. Uh, you still get the benefit of that work ethic, um, the experience of working towards something, uh, of studying hard for something, which is an experience that you can apply towards future outcomes. And I would feel so much more proud of my accomplishments over four years in high school to earn a 379 than I would focus on a score that I got over a period of three or four hours on a weekend one day, right? So I think we can get this like attachment to a score say, I worked so hard. I want to include this, but really it is a very cut and dried situation. Is this score above average at the school? If not, let's not send it. If it's yeah. below average, we're definitely going to withhold it. And then we're going to let the other content of the application stand up on its own. That makes total sense. And just because I know parents think this, tell me if they're right to your first point where it matters how the score looks at that college more than it looks in comparison to your high school. Do colleges have quotas for high schools? We only accept two students from this high school every year. Does that happen? I actually think that the role of a school group, which is what we called them when I read it, read is more pronounced at schools that are less selective than at schools that are more selective, right? So if I'm Harvard, I can accept whoever the heck I want because my admissions decisions don't make sense 
to <laughs> outsiders in general, right? Like I'm denying valedictorians left and right. So I can do whatever I want in this context. When your school like Reed, where we were accepting 33 or 40% of applicants, we couldn't not accept the clear number one student in the school and then accept number three within an applicant profile because we like their essay better because that sent the wrong message to that school. Mm. So what I think you're finding more often isn't that a school says we've got quotas here. They're just saying we want our admissions decisions to make sense in the context of this school group. When a counselor takes a look at that and says, Gosh, they denied the number one kid in the class to take the number 73 kid in the class. Why? Why would they do that? Um, so usually it's not about cutting off the, the, the list and saying, we only take the top three. It's about saying, if we're going to take number four and number five, we also want to take a look at number one, two, and three to make sure that there's something that makes sense within the context of this overall school group. So it's just about effectively communicating to counselors what that looks like. And I think with Patricia's school, this is a large competitive public high school where I think that the volume of applicants year over year is probably so large that there isn't that kind of um, detail within the school group. And bigger universities aren't going to look quite as carefully at that either um, in the way that smaller schools are. Yep. Makes sense. Um, Shannon, I'm nervous that we have two minutes left and we've got an opportunity for a question. What should we do? Do you want to just riff on like financial advice that people need to have on the first week of August? Like anything that you want people to, to take away? Yeah, I guess it's a good time. The bills are due for the first semester. Of most schools, the first week in August. So um, if you haven't got your bill taken care of yet, make sure you do so. If there are loans you have to borrow, get that paperwork in. You don't want to be college expensive enough. You don't want to be hit with late fines. Um, if you truly can't afford a certain school, you can still turn back. It is not too late. So I'll throw that point out there as well. But yeah, now's the time. Make, make sure you're prepared and prepared to pay for all four years. That's great. And this is the week that the common application launches for students, students who are applying this fall. Uh, so keep an eye out for that on the admission side. Next week, we've got another great show. We'll have Sally in the hosting chair. It's not actually this chair. It's another chair way over on the other side of the country, but she's hosting. They'll be talking about how to research majors with a screen share with our research maven, Elise Krantz. We'll be talking about the pros and cons of early year applications to college and some personal finance 101, finance tips for new college graduates. So if you've got somebody who's getting ready to enter the workforce, have them listen to our show next week. We'll have some great tips for them. Uh, until then, Shannon, thanks for being on and supporting all of the work that we do here with the podcast every single week. Thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.